We make decisions every day, but these days, those decisions, big and small, can feel paralyzing. Welcome to Deciding Factors, a new podcast from GLG. I'm your host, Eric Jaffe. Each week, I'll talk to a world-class expert who has faced incredibly tough decisions and can offer unique insights to help you navigate the decisions you face. On January 8th, 2021, two days after rioters stormed the U.S. Capitol, Twitter permanently suspended President Donald Trump's account on the platform. President Trump had been tweeting about January 6th for weeks, and Twitter decided to ban him, quote, due to the risk of further incitement of violence. The ban has sparked plenty of discussion about free speech, censorship, and the power of tech companies. Like many issues today, it's become fiercely partisan, with little room for middle ground. But President Trump's suspension from Twitter has deep roots in a long-standing debate over Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which grants tech platforms immunity from liability for the speech of their users. For example, Section 230 prevents users from suing Facebook over a post written by another user. It also means that the moderation of speech on social media platforms is largely left up to the companies themselves, giving them the power to decide what kind of speech is objectionable. Republicans and Democrats alike have criticized Section 230, and both Presidents Trump and Biden have called for its repeal. Some say that it fosters disinformation and hateful speech. Others say that it enables censorship by social media companies. That's why I'm excited to welcome today's guest, who can talk us through Section 230's legal context, its wide-ranging impact, and the political stakes at play. Matthew Perall is the director of the Center of Science and Technology Policy at Duke University and former director of public policy at Facebook. Matthew, welcome to Deciding Factors. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be on. So I thought we could start today with Section 230. Maybe you could just begin by telling us, you know, what is Section 230? Why was it necessary? Why does it matter? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And there's so much confusion about this. Basically, the core of Section 230 is the idea that there should be a distinction in liability between the internet platforms that host content and people who use those platforms to speak. The idea is that speakers are liable, but that the hosts themselves are not. And so if you use a service like Facebook or Twitter and you post content on it and you engage in speech that is unlawful in some way, it might be defamatory, it might be libelous, the platform itself is not responsible, is not legally accountable for your speech. Um, for people who have concerns about that speech and think that it might be illegal in some way, they can go after the speaker, but not the platform. And the reason that that's such a critical legal provision is that it basically gave birth to a whole set of tech products and business models that were rooted in the idea of user-generated content. It enabled platforms to host user speech without fear that they'd be dragged into court every time someone said something that was potentially defamatory or libelous on their platform. It gave them the ability to run products and services that, that had that user-generated content model. And so Section 230 is really at the core of of online free expression. Is there a analogy or precedent you could use to help us uh, and our listeners better understand Section 230? I'm not sure of a direct analogy, but I think one thing that people often misunderstand about 230 is that it actually applies both to platforms and to news publishers. So Facebook, when it is serving as a content host, is protected from being held accountable for the speech of its users, but so is the New York Times. So the New York Times, for instance, has a great cooking website where they have 
comments from lots of people on how to do things like figure out good substitutes for cake flour in a recipe, for instance. And if I post an incredibly defamatory libelous statement about cake flour in the New York Times cooking section, the New York Times is not liable for that. The New York Times is serving as a content host, so they're not liable. Conversely, when Facebook is serving as a publisher, when for the Facebook Watch product, for instance, where it commissions content that it runs on its platform, Facebook can be held liable as a publisher because it is producing that content. It is creating that content. And that's analogous to the New York Times. When the New York Times has reporters who write stories, they can be held liable for the content that they produce. So I think that's often overlooked that actually 230 does, in fact, protect publishers when they are serving as online intermediaries. So there's a lot of controversy about Section 230. It feels like at the moment, at least politically, sort of both sides of the aisle are dissatisfied with Section 230 and and speak publicly against it. Maybe Mm -hmm. you could walk us through on the political side, like what are the key grievances with Section 230? What do the various key constituencies want to do to change it? So it's really funny because um, both President Trump and President Biden actually agree on this. They, They both have called for the repeal of Section 230. President Trump tweeted about it uh, constantly during the course of the 2020 election. And President Biden, actually, in an interview with The New York Times editorial board, said that he was he was a supporter of repeal. And then he was questioned about this several months later and given a chance to walk back from that. And he actually doubled down on it and said that he continued to support the idea of full repeal of Section 230. The thing is, they want repeal of Section 230 for different reasons. So on the left, the concern is that Section 230 enables people to speak in ways that are really harmful on tech platforms. And the idea is that because tech platforms aren't accountable and because they have, they're able to monetize the user speech on their platforms to some extent, they have no disincentive to address harmful content on their platforms and, they're, and they permit a range of different types of problematic speech. And on the left, there's a particular concern that the speech that's permitted is harmful to certain communities that are often disadvantaged. So speech on online platforms might be harmful to people of color, might be harmful to women, might permit forms of sexual harassment, for instance, that are deeply problematic and harmful. On the right, there's a different set of concerns. The concerns on the right is that platforms are too censorious, that they take action to moderate speech on their platforms in ways that interfere with free expression. And the claim is that it has a disproportionate effect on conservative speech. The conservative claim, I think, is actually a misunderstanding of Section 230. Section 230 doesn't require platforms to be neutral. In fact, it protects them when they make content moderation decisions. So Platforms like Facebook and Twitter and YouTube can come up with whatever policies they want for the content on their platform. They are protected in doing that, not only by Section 230, but also by the First Amendment, which restricts the government's ability to regulate speech on the platforms. So what do you think is most likely to happen to Section 230 and what do you think ought to happen? Yeah, good question. And thank you for giving me the opportunity on on the ought part of it. I'm excited to talk about that, too. There are two bills that are pending right now um, that have bipartisan support, or I should say that were pending in the previous Congress and are likely to be reintroduced in the new Congress. One is called the Earned Act, which is focused on child uh, sexual exploitation, and the other is called the PACT Act, um, which is focused on two major things. One is requiring platforms to have a, have a set of procedures governing content on their platforms. So it would require them to have an acceptable use policy and Um, have some mechanism for um, receiving user complaints, have some mechanism for addressing appeals when users believe that action has been taken against their content um, in ways that are problematic or contrary to what the platform's terms actually are. 
And then it would also remove Section 230 protections in cases where platforms were on notice that a court had held that a certain piece of content was illegal. So in other words, if I'm able to go and get a court order finding that some content that you are hosting on your platform is illegal, so let's say it's defamatory in some way, when I bring a notice to you of that court order, you can either take the content down or if you fail to take that content down, then you can't use Section 230 as a defense in a case related to liability for that content. Those are the two bills that are that are pending now that I think are likely to have get some traction because they they do have bipartisan support. You also asked what what I think should happen. And so I, I published a paper a couple of months ago that put forward five recommendations for how we might think about 230 reform. And I suggested two areas that I think are worthwhile for Congress to focus on. One is modernizing federal election law. So focusing on issues like voter suppression and voter fraud. And the second is online incitement to riot. I wrote this piece before January 6th and the the riots at the Capitol. Obviously, that recommendation, I think, is probably more meaningful for some people now in the wake of the events of January 6th. But the key issue here is that federal criminal law is exempted from Section 230 protection, meaning that platforms can't use Section 230 as a defense in cases that are brought under existing federal criminal law. In current voter law, there is no federal criminal law that prohibits voter suppression or the use of deceptive practices to mislead voters about things like where their polling location is or what the right day is to vote. If Congress were to pass law in that area, a platform like Facebook or a platform like Twitter couldn't plead Section 230 as a defense in cases brought under that law. And that that's without any amendment to Section 230. Um, that, that's already something that's possible. The relevant law on incitement to riot was passed in the late 1960s, the Anti-Riot Act. Um, and obviously, a law that was passed in the late 1960s probably could not contemplate all the various permutations of the use of communication technologies to create real-world violence in the world. So updating that law and making sure that it, it is really fit for purpose in the digital age would be one way, I think, to address some of the concerns that people have about use of online platforms to incite riots. Can you talk about how the tech companies think about Section 230 and the need to regulate their behavior? I think tech executives think that Section 230 is really important to promoting a wide range of, of speech. In a world where Section 230 is removed, as I was saying before when I was talking about the conservative argument on this, I, I think it's likely that tech platforms would be more aggressive in policing speech on the platforms, not, not less, because when their legal liability for speech increases, they're going to take more aggressive measures to police the speech that's on their platform. Many different tech companies, I think all the major ones, have supported regulatory efforts, at least to some extent in this area, because I think they're they're tired of bearing responsibility for doing something like regulating election law. Like I said, there is no federal criminal law on deceptive practices in voting. And not only that, but existing election law is poorly regulated and poorly enforced because the Federal Election Commission has been limited in its ability to actually do its job, which is to regulate election law. For I think for a, a significant period of the fall, there were three vacant seats on the Federal Election Commission at a time when we really need a regulatory body to ensure that we have a good voting process. A lot of people look to tech platforms to do that work. And, and, and I think that's an enormous job. And I don't think it's one that tech platforms are ideally situated to perform. I think it would be helpful for the burden to shift away from tech companies and back toward the government to actually outline what the rules would look like in this really important aspect of our life. So in the aftermath of the January 6th attempted coup, Twitter famously deplatformed President Trump. 
Do you think it was the moment itself that drove that decision or do you think it had been gestating for a while? I don't have any sort of inside information on what the answer is, but I would think it's probably a confluence of things. I think platforms had gotten frustrated with feeling like there were repeated terms of service violations by the president and that that those would have been sufficient to kick him off of the platform had he not been the president. And what the platform said repeatedly, which I actually happen to agree with, is that they were hesitant to censor his speech because he was a sitting president and therefore it felt like valid and important political speech. I happen to think that's the right answer, but the constituency of people who believe that was shrinking rapidly. And after January 6th, it seems like the constituency that believed that, you know, really collapsed. I'm not sure it's going to serve the companies well in the long run, though. I mean, it certainly is a decision that alienates certain members of the Republican Party. I think it's been widely reported that there's increasing interest in antitrust from Republicans as a result of feeling like this showcased the power of tech platforms over discourse in our country. And and Republicans are now more interested in antitrust as a mechanism for addressing that power. And I also think there are reasons to question whether it makes us better off as a country. The fact that President Trump is not going to be able to use Twitter doesn't mean that he's not going to be able to get his message out to people who who are interested in hearing it. And it certainly doesn't mean that the people who believe the kinds of things that he was saying are all of a sudden now going to stop believing those things. So what about the platforms that users have moved on to since the attempted coup, like Signal and Parler, even though Parler's had its own challenges? Are Twitter users likely to gravitate to those platforms permanently, or do you think they will eventually come back to Twitter? Parler obviously has had significant complications since January 6th based on the challenges that they've had in having their service hosted. That's going to get in the way of them developing a, a broad user base. But it seems like it's conceivable that there might be others who would who would rush in to fill that gap and would seek to compete with services like Twitter and Facebook on the basis of providing a less restrictive set of content policies. I actually think that that kind of competition is good. I I don't think it's bad. There are lots of people who have called for more competition in the tech sector. And I think more competition on community standards, norms, and enforcement is is a positive thing so that people can make a choice about the platform that they want to use based in part on what the community standards offerings of that platform are. I think that's a positive thing. I would say my experience when I was at Facebook over time, when there were various different crises in the in the social media space, is that it did seem like people tended to come back to the platforms. My experience was that whenever something happened that caused platforms to re-examine some component of what they did, the platforms worked really hard to try to compete aggressively to bring back users who had left or, or keep users on the platform who were considering leaving. And so they they often very quickly put out a, a number of different improvements and reforms to how they run their platform to, to try to make themselves compelling to users. A good segue to talking about the case for breaking up these companies. Can you walk us through kind of the case for and the case against breaking up the big tech companies? The case for, I think, is that platforms have been able to accumulate a dominant position in the markets that they operate in that has enabled them to engage in anti-competitive behavior. And the extent of that dominance and the extent of the behavior is sufficient to warrant a very aggressive remedy such as breakup, which would create a more competitive tech sector. I don't believe in the correctness of any of the prongs of that argument for what it's worth. I, I, I tend to come down on the other side, which is I, I think there is aggressive 
competition in the tech sector. There are many people who say that Facebook and Google don't compete. My experience is that if you walked into a room of Facebook executives and told them they don't compete with Google, that you'd be laughed out of the room. And I think the same thing would happen at Google. If you went in and told them that they don't compete with Facebook, um, you'd be laughed out of the room. And so I, I think there is aggressive competition in the tech sector, not just between Facebook and Google, but increasingly with Amazon, which has a growing ads business with Apple, as we've seen with recent news about back and forth between Mark Zuckerberg and Tim Cook, they see themselves as competitors. And with TikTok, which is has been increasingly on the rise, and I think companies like Google, YouTube, and Facebook, and Twitter, and maybe even Apple um, see TikTok as a potential competitor. So I think I think there is significant competition in the tech sector. I don't see the evidence of systematic conduct that disadvantages consumers in some way. I think generally, advertising prices have fallen. Most of these services either have a zero price that they offer to consumers or have reduced prices over time for consumers. You know, I'm thinking of companies like Amazon there or WhatsApp removing its subscription fee over time so that it's now a free service. And at the same time, I think the quality of most of the products have improved over time and companies have become more and more innovative, I think, over time. So I don't see evidence of anti-competitive conduct. And then it's not clear to me that a remedy of breakup would improve things very much. So I think the most common thing that people think of when they think about breakup right now is separating out Facebook and Instagram. In order to think that you'd have a more competitive landscape when Facebook and Instagram are separate, you have to think that Facebook is not making significant, important investments in Instagram that have helped it to become and to continue to be a very successful product. Those investments are across a, a bunch of different components of the company, from the infrastructure that they use, data storage, server capacity, all, all of that type of stuff that helps the, the service perform well. I think services like Instagram and WhatsApp have really benefited from the investment that Facebook has made in them. So it's not evident to me that breaking the companies up is going to be better for consumers or better for advertisers. Why is there confusion about whether or not Facebook and Google might be competitors? You know, it's such a good question. I think people think of the value they provide as being really distinct. Like people think, well, Facebook is a social network and Google is a search engine. I don't think people wake up in the morning and say, I can't wait to spend some time today social networking. I think they wake up and they think, I'd like to share some videos. I'd like to share some photos. I'd like to be in touch with my friends. I'd like to communicate in, in XYZ way. I mean, I think it's very clear that Google and Facebook compete for advertising revenue. And I think they compete with a lot of other, other types of organizations. I think one of the reasons publishers have been so aggressive, for instance, in regulatory advocacy against big tech platforms is that they see big tech platforms as competitors for advertising dollars. On the advertising side, there really is pretty clear competition between companies like Facebook and Google and then with a wider set of businesses like you know, AT&T and News Corp. So before we wrap up, let's zoom out and talk about the global implications of Section 230. Do you anticipate there being a future decision which would have a global impact for these tech platforms? So I, th I think it's, it's largely similar. Section 230 reform that increases platform liability is going to result in platforms being more censorious of speech across the world and probably re-architecting their services in ways that leave less room for speech by anyone, whether that's significant political official in Brazil or India or a speaker in the United States. I think there will largely be less room for speech and there will be more aggressive censorship. I do think it raises some interesting questions, though, about how platforms have enforced their policies in the U.S. versus how they've enforced them internationally. And I think the general allegation is that platforms have been more willing to police speech 
outside the U.S. in certain circumstances, more willing, for instance, to take down um, the speech of various different global leaders outside the U.S. as opposed to address President Trump's speech. And then in some circumstances have under-policed problematic content on their platforms in places like you know Facebook and Myanmar, for instance, where the allegation is that Facebook turned a blind eye to content that was important in driving the genocide there. And, and I think those allegations are, are fair to some extent. I, I think Facebook is a U.S. company. Twitter is a U.S. company. I think the way that they kind of orient their focal point tends to be, as, as, as much as they may try not to, may tend to be different in the U.S. than it is abroad. And I think thinking really seriously about the implications of 230 reform in terms of international speech, and then also thinking seriously about the impact of platform policies on speech outside the U.S. is is really, really important. Matthew, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was a fascinating conversation. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. That was Matthew Peral, director of the Center of Science and Technology Policy at Duke University and former director of public policy at Facebook. Matthew spoke about a variety of topics related to the significant role big tech platforms now play in society, including the impact of Section 230 on internet speech and the cases for and against breaking up the big tech companies. I thought his take on the need for more government intervention and setting guardrails around internet speech to be particularly compelling. As one example, Matthew spoke about the role that tech platforms play in contributing to a fair, effective voting process and cutting down on disinformation. Like Matthew said, quote, it would be helpful for the burden to shift away from tech companies and back toward the government to actually outline what the rules would look like in this really important aspect of our life. We hope you'll join us next time for another in-depth interview with one of GLG's council members. Feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. Or email us at decidingfactors at glgroup.com if you have feedback or ideas for future show topics. And don't forget to visit our website, glginsights.com, for articles, ebooks, and videos about the world around us. For Deciding Factors in GLG, I'm Eric Jaffe. Stay safe out there, and thanks for listening.